0: So asking those kind of questions, though, I think it can be overwhelming, but to do what you need to do to become educated. So any questions, don't feel silly. If they say a word you don't know, just ask what that word means. Technically, healthcare language is a different language. Like you could definitely say it's a different.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe, the place to learn about how to navigate the healthcare system and understand health in plain language. I'm your host, Nikita Boston Fisher, a health educator with a passion for meeting people where they are. Today's guest is Stacy Lampkin. Stacy is a pediatric pharmacist and certified patient advocate. Today in the cafe, we're going to discuss lots of interesting and exciting topics like at what age you should start including children in decisions related to their health. So grab your warm drink and tune in for a great episode. Stacey, welcome to the Good Health Cafe. Thank you so much for coming. Could you please introduce yourself to the audience?
0: Thank you so much for having me. My name is Stacey Lampkin. My short and sweet intro is I'm a pediatric pharmacist and recently became interested in patient advocacy and a patient advocate after going through my own health journey in the past few years. And then I also have interest in herbalism and I'm a certified aromatherapist and I'm a parent to two kiddos. And so I am started a business venture of doing medication education and patient advocacy. Uh, so that's a little bit, that's like my 360 overview, but I can dive into any of those <laughs> parts of me at any point in
1: time. Definitely. Can you tell me a little bit of what got you interested in this line of work, like in pharmacy and patient education? Yeah. So I always was interested
0: in pediatrics and would have never thought I would have went into pharmacy. Like as like growing up as a child, I didn't even like think medical. And I actually went to France and got sick when I was there and talked to a pharmacist and they were great. And I'm like, I'm going to be a pharmacist. So that got me interested in pharmacy. And then I went through that whole journey of pharmacy and have been practicing as a pharmacist for over 10 years. Specifically, I do pediatric pharmacy. So I'm not in a community pharmacy, as most people assume when you hear the word pharmacist, I do outpatient clinical pharmacy and with a pediatrician's office. Uh, So helping like doing medication education with the families or with the providers And then more recently, that kind of patient advocacy thing in 2018, I actually unexpectedly got cancer. I was 33. I was navigating the healthcare system that I already knew from working in it had some barriers, but I didn't realize until I was in the system, like firsthand, how awful it is, like how easily you can get lost. And I was fortunate that I didn't, like I knew what to do, so to speak. Like I knew to call back the doctor if they didn't call me back. I knew to get my first and second opinion were days apart. So as I went through that journey, I kind of was like, how do I use my knowledge and how do I help people moving forward? What's my new role in life when I'm with this? And I became really uh, aligned with the definition of a patient advocate and trying to teach people how to advocate for their health and the healthcare system. And then I think Medication education is often over missed. And, and that's so I kind of combined that to say that I want to provide medication education too and make that more accessible, especially for pediatric patients.
1: Okay. So tell me, Stacy, about certified aromatherapy, your interest in herbalism, and how that ties in with being a pharmacist, which is like very Western. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Why would you say quite eastern? Yes. I don't
0: remember when, but it was probably around like five years back, somebody else introduced me into aromatherapy and there was another pharmacist and I was like, all right, I'll kind of look into it. And I'm a super structured learner. So as I start, I'm like, oh, this is like fascinating. And I could see this like essential oil thing, but I really need to learn about it. So I took a course. Um, and then as I was looking into courses, there's a certified aromatherapy courses you can take. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to. Do the whole course so I can really learn all about aromatherapy, and then in doing so, with that, I realized aromatherapy is just one piece to the bigger herbal picture. And I actually have a great—I'm in Western New York. Have, there's a great herbal community here, and I, my sister dragged dragged me into a class that I didn't think I was going to like on herbalism, <laughs> and I loved it. And I kept going to classes with the people in the herbal community. Yeah. So I went through and I was like, wow, this is really another benefit in addition to medications and how it ties it. So this is a journey. So I'll, I'll try to keep it short, but I actually, when I, so then I started hit the cancer journey, I was like starting to learn about both hit the cancer journey. And like, once again, super grateful that, I knew about like herbalism and aromatherapy for all that supportive stuff. So I did do chemotherapy. I used Western medicine, but like I needed to use the calming essential oils some days. Just as I was going through that process though, as I was learning about herbalism, I actually had a time period where I thought that I couldn't be a pharmacist anymore. Like, cause you're so taught, like you said, that they don't align. Right. So I was, really in my head and all this turmoil for the longest time of maybe I shouldn't tell people I'm a pharmacist. Maybe I shouldn't tell people in pharmacy that I study alternative therapies. And uh, so for a while they were actually disconnected. And I'd probably say in the past year, I really started to become more confident and have like a new passion too, to try to get people to say that there are two awesome things that we everyone needs and it shouldn't be one or the other. And that there's certain people you talk to for one and certain people you talk to for the other and we're starting to come together more, but yeah, where they come together, they do need to come together for anybody who's definitely listening we need to get them to come together better, That's but it so, is a hard conversation.
1: That is so awesome. I'm glad you touched on that. Cause you basically preempted my next question was like, do you feel a conflict between them? <laughs> it sounds like you're marrying it a bit. <laughs>
0: yes. So like I said, probably just the past year I, I, no longer have internal conflict, but for the longest time. And when you talk to other healthcare professionals, I talked to a few people that I knew were doing both. And I asked them, like, how do they manage it? The one person said, you one a day and one at night, they can't go together. I was like, wait, this, this doesn't help people. Like, you can't say that during the day, you're this person, and during the night, you're this person. Yeah. I mean, we'll still make like some of my coworkers still joke about it because a lot of them now know I do like herbal stuff and they'll be like, Can you go home and make me an herbal potion like (laughs) potion at night? Because they know like during the day, I'm obviously not. But for the most part, the more I've been talking about it and the more I tell people that I am a pharmacist and I use medications, but I also use herbs and I make my own tinctures and I make my own aromatherapy blends, a lot of people really respect. Yeah, that. like when you actually start talking to people, for the most part a lot of those misconceptions are all in our heads about one or the other.
1: I love that. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So, can you let's start with medication education first and then we'll move to advocacy. What are some common medication missteps that you observe and how can we avoid them? Oh. So, I'm going
0: to talk from a pediatric yeah. standpoint more cuz that's really a my passion and be my background. So when we're speaking more about pediatrics and parents, I think probably one of the biggest things, and rightfully so, is the hesitancy to use medications. Some of it's definitely the healthcare system's fault about, and we don't do great education always on pediatric medications. So depending, sometimes you see, I'm going to think about it. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to wait. I know they're just going to recommend a medication. I don't want to give my kids meds. And then it's not too late, but then you're kind of Something has evolved in the child and now you're giving medications and you're could have the whatever was going on could have snowballed a little bit. And so that's fear around, I don't want to give my kids medications, but I some of it's our fault. We don't, they don't know where to go to ask the right questions. We don't have enough time as healthcare providers in the doctor's office, might not do the best education. Even Tylenol and ibuprofen that are simple medications, like people might have concerns even about using that for fever and might say, I don't want to give my kids meds, but Like it's actually helpful in certain situations to give your kids medication. So I'd probably say that's probably the number one we're talking about families is kind of that delay because of the, but I, I think it's usually a fear and you haven't, and then there, and then the other along that lines of if it's not fear, just getting the right education, right. To make sure that you can make that informed decision. So sometimes you have the other spectrum where you just say, okay, I'm just going to do whatever, but making sure that you really understand Medications do have effects and side effects and what to look out for and, and making sure that you kind of have all that information
1: available. So what's the best way to get the right information? A little pitch for
0: pharmacists would advise. Ideally it's talking to a community pharmacist for sure. I, and definitely the pediatrician or nurse practitioner or whomever is in, that, that you're seeing with your child. And asking the questions though, right? So that's always the, like asking those questions. What is it for? What happens if I miss a dose? What happens if I don't take it? What should I be looking out for? What are you looking out for as the healthcare provider? Is it a medication they're going to be on for a year, 10 years, 20 years? So asking those questions. I think pharmacists definitely have the knowledge of the medications. And then the physicians often have the medications of the knowledge, but Might not have, um, but they also have the picture of like what's going on with your child, that sometimes the community pharmacist might not have all that information out there. So kind of between the two, getting that information, if you forget to ask at the doctor's office, definitely ask the pharmacist. And if they're not comfortable, my little side caveat is a lot of community pharmacists might not be pediatric trained. So if they're not comfortable, that's fine. Just definitely ask them see if they can ask somebody their colleagues if they have like that might be more comfortable. In my dream world there would be a pediatric pharmacist in every pediatrician's office. <laughs> so if there's a pediatric pharmacist in a pediatrician's office ask them. In most hospitals there are pediatric pharmacists. So if you aren't comfortable with maybe the education you got upon discharge, you could also ask if there's a pharmacist that could expand on that. So that's a kind of a, another th- way if you're in the hospital setting.
1: That, those are great questions. Thank you. Are pediatric pharmacists in doctor's offices, do they dispense medication or are, are you there as an information resource?
0: I'm there as an information resource. Most are in, the, in there for an information resource occasionally you might have like a collaboration where there's a pharmacy next door and then they might kind of help with, I'm hearing that model of trying to become more popular of like, you might get a pharmacist that floats into the office, but usually in the office, no, you're not doing any dispensing.
1: Is there a question that you wish people would ask more often when you're having conversations with them? Ooh,
0: question (laughs) I wish people would ask more often. Honestly, I, I don't, I just think they're so overwhelmed that I wish they would just ask questions in general. But again, I don't know. I think people are so overwhelmed that they don't even know where to ask. But I would probably say, honestly, I think the biggest question is if you go home and you read something online and you then decide I'm not taking this medication, what often happens is then you'll go back to the office a m- month later when you're supposed to follow up to see how the medication was working and you hadn't taken it yet. And you get, so then you're, I wish people would call back sooner and ask those questions sooner, like if you've gotten to that point. So any question at any time, I wish people would not, that would probably be my wish is that they would ask any questions when they get them, ask them at that time instead of just like just stopping the medication or kind of being on edge with it instead
1: of waiting. I love that. That's a perfect example. I feel like I've been guilty of that myself. I'll just wait till the next appointment to clarify as opposed to just, you know, calling ahead. Yeah, it's so easy to do that. Yeah, (laughs) it is. So how'd that medication work for you? Well, to be honest.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And then you also get the, oh, it's working great. And then like six months later, they're like, how is this working great? You're out of refills. And they're like, well, actually, I never started it. It's like, oh, like, that's, that's horrible that you feel that you can't tell us. That's not a great dynamic when we talk about navigating the healthcare system. If somebody's not comfortable saying I didn't start it. Yeah. And,
1: you know, how do you fix that? You know, as maybe as a healthcare provider, maybe you have some thoughts, but what, how can we, how can you make your patients feel more comfortable so that they open up?
0: I will say after going through my own cancer journey, I think I am actually a better on that end because I will say when you're in that environment and you've, most people probably heard you get burned out and not like all that stuff you've probably have seen. And then your appointment's only 15 minutes and it's so quick and nobody, so all those stories. So when you're in that environment and you're around the same people, it's easy to also get discouraged with patients. And said we're not sitting there talking bad about patients per se, but sometimes you're like, you take that from one patient to the next a little bit of like, oh, they never do this. Oh, they never take their meds. Oh, like you might see that theme. And I think stepping back and being like, that's my fault. I never educated appropriately. Oh, they don't know that they were supposed to call me back. I told them I would call them. Like So I think we often put a lot of blame on patients. So as a healthcare professional, I think we need to step back and actually start blaming ourselves and our system. And that even if it's not ourselves personally, just that culture that's there of it's the patient's fault. Mm-hmm. we in reality. Yes. To us, it might seem self-explanatory to call the office when you have a question, <laughs> but <laughs> to somebody else, they might not have the access to, or the resources, or there's language barriers. So we can even go down that pathway too. Uh, Like I'm speaking from, for those that aren't listening, I'm white and have have education. So that also makes it a little bit different of a dynamic too. So making sure all those other things as a whole healthcare system start getting in place so people are comfortable and we need to start opening up as healthcare providers and asking questions for the people if they don't
1: ask. That's right. (laughs) Wonderful assessment, Stacey. Now you're a patient advocate. And why do you think that patient advocacy is so important? Patient
0: advocacy is so important because our healthcare system is broken. (laughs) So it's overwhelming to being a patient. So not even do you have the barriers of not recognizing the healthcare system. When you're a patient, you often are thinking about so many other things. Uh, Absorb, even if you have a healthcare background, even when I was sitting in those rooms when I had cancer, there were times I was like, I don't know what's going on until after you left. So, when you have a patient advocate, it could be an independent patient advocate, it could be a healthcare or a family member that is kind of in that role, but somebody else who, when you're not feeling your best, can help be your eyes and ears and advocate uh, because we know there are so many barriers in the healthcare system. you aren't going to necessarily feel like speaking up or calling the office if you're not feeling well. So making sure there's somebody else
1: that can do that. How do you speak up or advocate without being labeled as difficult? This one is so tricky
0: and nuanced. And once again, I'm saying this is I think also easier for me Mm -hmm. because I have a healthcare background. So I'm super comfortable speaking up and I can say, can sometimes say I'm a pharmacist. So I will also disclaim that there are times I said at a pharmacist and I still get eye rolls and they're like, Oh, you're a pharmacist. Like, but <laughs> okay, thanks. Like, so it's not even, you can get those even as healthcare workers, but in general, I will say, I do have that. It's easier said than done regardless. It shouldn't once again, fall on the patient, but I think any way that you can connect with the provider is and just get that rapport established quickly. Even if you're not feeling the best, if you can just say like, hi, how are you too? Like not just kind of making it self-centered, which you are the patient, it should be all about you, but trying to get that rapport. And that like, once you get that rapport, it's easier to speak up. Like they, and then the other ones, even if you can't get that rapport, some of it's just how you ask the questions. I don't know a better way to say this, but feeding into ego a little bit of saying like, I really want your opinion about what I read versus just saying like, oh, I read this on the internet. I'm not doing it. Right. So sometimes it's kind of how you phrase that question uh, to like feed into, I want your advice. I want your opinion kind of softening. I'm going to do what I want because I read this on the internet. Like that's quickly going to shut down conversation, even though it might be valid and accurate and you're the patient and you're the one that's living in your body. And you might want to say, but like, this is how I feel. And you're not listening, but so kind of trying to make connection in in different ways, but I would say trying to soften language a little bit. Unfortunately, (laughs) I get trauma, right? Like you want to be nice to each other, but sometimes it was like, we as healthcare providers, right. You're in the place of authority. So you shouldn't get angry back at somebody who's technically feels like they're not in that place, but it
1: happens because we're all human, right? Yeah. And what about, you know, you feel like you've done your part, you know, they say, speak up and I've spoken up, but for whatever reason you feel like they're not hearing you or they're not listening to you. And especially when it comes to your precious little baby child, <laughs> I can imagine that you'll get a little bit more agitated more quickly. Like my baby's in pain and you're how, yes. how do you keep your cool in, in those situations. Yeah. And at some
0: point too, you... It, just speaking up and trying to be factually too is somewhat helpful is like, I understand what you're saying, but my kids have been like, we've tried this, we've tried this, we've tried this. Is there anything else you can suggest? Or is there anybody else you could ask behind the scenes? Not that I don't trust you, but like, this is getting frustrating. I've been down this route or like, is there something else you can do? One question or thing I think we also as healthcare providers need to get better at is knowing where our knowledge base and So maybe asking, do I need a second opinion? Uh, at what point do I need a second opinion? And honestly, if you have a, some of my favorite doctors are the ones that say like, you should go get a second opinion. <laughs> so I'm yeah. kind of asking like, yes, I, the stomach issue has been going on forever and they're in pain. Is there somebody else that might look at stomach issues a little bit differently that I can, because there are sometimes times too, if you think once again, we're all human some providers don't want to just keep passing you off to different people because that's a common complaint in the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, everyone keeps passing me off. So they might hold on to that a little bit longer. But if you want that, then ask for that. Mm-hmm. So I think if you can, definitely ask for a second opinion, If like who you could get a second opinion with. And if you can't get a second opinion, ask maybe if they have somebody that they could talk to to, to get some extra
1: opinions uh-huh. with them. What age do you think is ideal if there is an ideal age for starting to involve children in their medication decisions?
0: There is an ideal age. It's actually uh, involving kids in their care should actually start at three years old, not necessarily in decision-making, but just simple things of getting comfortable with the doctor, making sure that if they can speak, like say their name, so simple. And then as it goes, kids should always have like five, six, right? When they start making decisions about other things, right? When you ask if your kids can make a decision about what food they want to eat, they should be involved in decision making when it comes to healthcare. It might not be, do you want the shot? Because, of course, they're going to say no, if you're <laughs> vaccinating your kid. But it should be, do you want it in the right arm or the left arm, right? So, like trying to allow them to be involved in certain decisions. And then as they gain in age, teenagers for sure. Definitely having that conversation with them in terms of how comfortable, like, do they want to be the ones that make the decision? Do they want you to make the decision? And that could be different based on what's going on healthcare-wise. But definitely making sure, I don't think we do that great as parents, is making sure that our kids feel included. And an aside to that is, I don't think we do a great job, not necessarily because we're intentionally not doing it. It's because we're not comfortable in the healthcare system. So you're like, shh, don't ask a question because you're trying to figure out what's going on. But that's actually a good way. Have your kid ask all the questions. The doctor's office isn't going to shut the door on the kid. (laughs) Have them ask all the questions.
1: (laughs) Have them ask the questions you are too embarrassed to ask. That's a great idea. Are pediatric appointments as short as adult appointments? Are they the same length
0: of time? I think they're about the same, but having been in two worlds, I definitely, and it will say pediatrics tend to not feel as short, Yeah. Uh, but usually, yeah, there are ones uh, that They're 15 minutes technically, but I don't think you do get that like, oh, they shut the door on me (laughs) (laughs) in adult worlds. And then, right, you're used to working with kids. So it does seem like a friendlier environment, Uh, but there's still a lot of barriers there and you still have, they might be nicer, but you can still come across definitely nice people that you don't connect with or you don't think are necessarily Like you said, the pain, like you're in pain and you're not helping me. Like (laughs) it can still happen. Are there any other barriers that you can think of? Oh my gosh, I could go through tons of barriers. They're honestly the same in adults and kids. You definitely have communication barriers between providers. Like that's definitely a huge, huge one when it comes to like patient advocacy and advocating for yourself as we do rely a lot on like our computer systems and in terms of assuming that all of our kids, like healthcare records are right there front and center. But once again, they something that happened when they were three, when they're 15 now, yes, it's still the same pediatrician, but it's not easy to go back and see what, depending on what mm-hmm. happened, like it might be buried there if they had an upset stomach from three and it was a a diagnosis that they got. It carries through, but it's not always as simply put. So those same barriers of like assuming just because your kid's been there forever, your doctor remembers everything that they had and, or it's in the computer system. They should be able to look at it quickly, know everything at every
1: visit. I love the example that you had given about, you know, well, a, a simple way to involve the child is, well, do you want it in your left arm or do you want it in your right arm? What about consent then? When do you take that into consideration for like when they they said, no, I don't want this treatment? Like, how do you balance (laughs) a child's consent and preferences, what you feel is best?
0: With I don't know all the laws, and then they vary by state, so that does impact it. Mm -hmm. Uh, so depending on the state, it's like new. We're in New York state. There's certain conditions that kids can consent to themselves younger than 18 mental health and sexual transmitted like illnesses. They can actually seek care. And so there's always this gray area too, because you're on your parents' insurance and we're not them, like that's HIPAA if you break it. Mm-hmm. So putting all that aside, that so just being aware of that, that kids can consent for certain things on their own. And so that, if that's the case, then the provider does listen to the child. Other than that, if they're generally not considered a consentable age, it is really a discussion with you and the family member and sometimes the pediatricians and healthcare workers do kind of play the middle person of like making sure the parent's side is heard. And and then as a parent, we should try to make sure that the child's side is heard, even if they're not going to consent to it, you obviously have to take into consideration the severity of the Illness and what's yes. going on because then you have potentially you're concerned that, right? You don't want to call CPS on you and say, like, oh, you weren't giving your six-year-old their seizure medicine because they didn't want to take it. Like, so obviously there's a lot of nuance with with that. But I'd probably say the biggest thing is yes, it's parents. Like, of course we always want our kids to feel the best. Of course we want them to do everything we want them to do. <laughs> but making sure at least that their opinion is heard. And if there's ways and ask the pediatrician to kind of talk on both sides and make sure that they, at least sometimes it's more of a miscommunication and understanding why they won't agree to it. Cause they're like, oh, I don't want to do a shot every single day, depending, but maybe they don't recognize like the value of that and having that heard. Maybe there is another option that you didn't even know of because we didn't ask those questions too. So ask like letting their opinion be heard, but yes, technically at the The end of the day, if they're
1: younger, it is up to the parent. Are there top questions or questions you think parents should always address whenever they go to a pediatric appointment?
0: There's two sides to pediatric appointments. Pediatrics is really good at preventative care, right? We have those every so month visits when they're infants and toddlers, and then obviously you can go to your pediatrician for any acute or chronic illness as well. Uh, So uh, in those early, if you're going for your, the kid's regular checkup, I, I think if you have questions, ask questions, uh, like what to do if they get sick, or if you don't know what to do, if they have a fever. So if you're not sure, kind of making sure that you know what to do, even if they are healthy, if there's anything you should be doing, but I don't think there's usually as many questions for those, unless you have like a specific question, but when you're going in, if your kid is has any illness, always my questions are definitely making sure you understand like what's going on. Is it a chronic? Is it long-term? Are there other treatment options? Is it only medications? So any those questions to just help you become more informed and educated about what's going on. And then also I would love to ask like what resources they recommend. You're going to go home and look it up on the internet. And so try And to be honest, say, I'm going to go look this up. Like, do you have a place you want me to recommend, look specifically, or do you want me to come back here when I look all this stuff up? So asking those kind of questions, though, I think it can be overwhelming, but to do what you need to do to become educated. So any questions don't feel silly. If they say a word you don't know, just ask what that word means. Technically, healthcare language is a different language. Like you could definitely say it's a different When you hear two doctors or a pharmacist doctor speaking, you might not understand half of what they're saying because it's, we say we teach in layman terms or we say we teach in different levels, but we often forget that what might be common language to us is not common language to others.
1: That's so true. You mentioned, for example, asking, well, is it chronic? What does chronic mean? What do you mean by is it chronic? Yeah. (laughs) I'm just I
0: to see some of those come back in. Yeah. So chronic means that something that's going to often be a lifelong illness or for an extended period of time. So diabetes, if there is often like a chronic illness and kids can get that asthma could be a chronic illness, but kind of asking asthma could also sometimes go away over time. These kids quote unquote grow out of it is like, what, but. We won't get into all the sciencey stuff with that, but kind of like, if that's your question, because you then can prepare a little bit more in terms of like that, getting into that acceptance of, yes, they're going to need medications potentially for the rest of their life and kind of work that into the routine versus them saying, you know what, this is probably something that's going to go away in a year. We can just work on it really now and get this figured out. And then, so you kind of have different mindsets. I think you need to get into, if you're growing with a kid, who's going to, be potentially needing to see the doctor every three months instead of once a year uh, versus maybe they just need to see the kid every day or every week for a year. And then that will, they're chronic, they don't have something chronic lifelong. I'm going into adulthood that hopefully that was a good enough (laughs) layman. Challenge me to define
1: my terms. (laughs) Are there any myths or misconceptions about patient advocacy that you think should be dispelled?
0: I will say when I started down at the patient advocacy track, I, it makes sense what it is, but I didn't really know it exists. It existed. There's been independent patient advocates out there for a while. So I think the big, what I also learned is when I thought of patient advocates, I thought of them being like in the hospital. So you might even hear that term, like you can get a hospital advocate or a big healthcare systems often will assign you with an advocate or a care, sometimes the other terms are care coordinators or there's a, liaisons. There's a bunch of different words. Just assumed they were always in the hospital. So I think that's probably the biggest myth and misconception is that you can have a patient advocate that is not attached to the healthcare you are receiving. There's private patient advocates out there uh, that like can go to appointments with you. They have different specialties to Might help you navigate your insurance, might help you navigate uh, long-term care. So there's all different specialties out there. And I probably say that was the first like misconception I even had was that there's independent patient
1: advocates out there that are doing phenomenal work. Do you have any thoughts or tips for caregivers on how they can manage their stress? You know, when, what do they do when they get overwhelmed? What do, what would you recommend?
0: I'm just going to talk on this one, but I don't really have any good stuff yet. Our healthcare system, of course, is not set up for caregivers in terms of stress. But I think recognizing that caregiver fatigue is a real thing, I think is probably the first step and to try to recognize that if you feel overwhelmed as a caregiver, like that is legit. You are allowed and you shouldn't feel obligated to do everything yourself. So if there are other resources you can tap into, if there's social workers, you can ask to see if there's anything to help. Obviously, what's getting easier said than done. We know our resources are limited. And but or even if you need to see a counselor to just somebody else to talk to because you are always caregiving for some person and you need a, a break right. and you need your own support like that's. There's nothing wrong with that. So I'd probably say the first easy step is just making sure that you recognize as a caregiver you are, that's all normal and you're allowed to cry in the corner. You're allowed to feel like you don't want to do it (laughs) sometime and that's okay. And then you can go back to doing it and to keep having conversations with the person you're caregiving for. I will say when I went through my journey, so my Husband was my primary caregiver. He was also had two kids and I did chemotherapy. So there were, but I also was super grateful that I had family that was local that actually could like watch my kids so he could take care of me. But there were times he felt guilty asking our family to take care of the kids while he was taking care of me, or vice versa. I was like, why don't you spend time with the kids? I will go lay on my parents' couch. Once again, I'm super grateful I had that resource, but, but he, he, guilt. So I was like, stop, like, we let's have a conversation about what you're feeling too. Like, yes, I think when sometimes when you're caregiving, you assume the person that, cause they're super sick or may mm-hmm. not be super sick that you can't complain to them ever, or you can't have a conversation about how you're feeling, but I don't think that's fair. So I think as the patient and the caregiver also having that conversation. And there were times too, I was like, I am literally fine laying on the couch for three hours, go outside. I'm just going to be sleeping. I'll call you if I need you. But I know there's that worry of yes, like, what if I don't call or whatever? Mm-hmm. So I know that's hard too, but.
1: Um. I love that example. And it's perfect, I think, for like the adult-adult interaction. How do you think that dynamic translates with the adult-child interaction and uh, going to try to avoid asking two questions, but I kind of feel like they're linked. You know, for example, if you do have a sick child and they're unwell, you know, how much of their illness do you share with them? How much of your worry about their condition do you share with them? So you both.
0: (laughs) Yeah. There's actually studies done that show that kids know when something's wrong, even if we never tell them. Mm -hmm. Most kids don't love talking about death, but some of the studies are done surrounding kids in like the ICU and that they know they're dying even if nobody tells them. And Mm -hmm. often after parents will regret that they never had conversations and they'll actually have increased rates of like depression if you've had a chronic Mm -hmm. child that has passed away and never having conversations with them. And the kids know, but we're the, right? We're the adults. They assume they can't talk to us if we're not talking to them. Mm -hmm. Or they might hear rumblings in the background of like, maybe maybe family members arguing about something and they might feel like, oh, I better not say anything or they're just going to get angry, right? So when you look at what's already out there, obviously you have to talk. To, just talk to your kids. Say, do you know what's going on? They're in the office with you. You might not think they're listening, but they are. Even if you're kind of sneaking outside, kids have like super great hearing. I was like, oh, you were like in the backyard way, 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 away from me when I said that. How did you know I said that? So they often know as much as you can try to keep it a secret from them. So just make it, if they don't want to talk about it, then don't talk about it. Ask them if they know what's going on. Like they know they're not feeling well. So, and they should know that you, like, it's okay to be sad with them and be sad together. Obviously, it, right. I it can't be every single day that they, they feel like they're start taking care of you because you're so sad, <laughs> but having that conversation with them, I think is, I think it shows modeling too of. Like you're you're allowed to have emotion and like models to them that they can have emotion because you have emotion too around it. So I think we underestimate the capacity of children.
1: I love that example too, because it reminds me sometimes of when you're around a child and you don't want to say something. So you spell it and then <laughs> then they you know respond to whatever you're saying. I did that the other day and my son's like, what did you just spell? <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> They know the word. And it's like, well, you drop them off to school every day to learn. <laughs> you got to remember that they're to learn to spell while they're there.
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: Do you have a favorite advocacy success story, you know, for yourself or someone, you know, or maybe a kid that, you know, we advocated and look, it worked out.
0: Probably the one that sticks in the head the most. And another reason I got like really pushed into pediatrics, uh, in terms of advocacy was actually, I was helping my sister. She, her one son ended up in having hyperbilirubinemia. So like high levels of bilirubin. And usually it's pretty routine. You just have to get your blood work tested and then you get like different therapy. It's once again, it's not when you're the parent, definitely simple, but on the healthcare side, it's generally not something overly concerning, long-term, easily managed, but definitely doesn't feel like that when you're the parent in that situation. So she took her kid to the, had to get the blood work just because the way our healthcare system is, it had to be done at the emergency room. And she thought she was going to go get the blood work done and get sent home. So she, I was like, do you want me to come? She's like, no, no, I can, I can do it. She calls me crying. (laughs) They couldn't get the IV in, they couldn't get the blood work in. And it was like, six o'clock at night. So we're starting to get later in the day. So she's, so I'm like, all right, I'll be right there. So we get to, so I get to the emergency department. She, I, they were still trying to get the IV in. She's like crying. Cause there were kids crying. This was pre COVID thankfully. So I could be there. Her husband was there, but they're like all distressed. So I like go over and she's like standing in the corner crying. And I was like, went over to her son. I was like, talking to the nurse. I was like going over there, wash my hands, trying to like talk to him because he was, he was a baby, but there's things you can do to calm a baby, like rubbing his head and like telling him, like doing the shh and all that stuff. And then afterwards she comes over. So this isn't technically all advocacy, but it kind of plays into some of the things that I think are still advocacy that we don't think of. After the whole experience, she says, I didn't know I was allowed to touch my kid. She's like, That like changed my life. Now, when I go into appointments, like, she's like, I didn't know, (laughs) like, like, so she, a part of her distress was the fact that she was, he was crying on the table and she thought she had to be away from him. Mm -hmm. And so that like, just kind of thinking some of those little things are actually ways you could like, so that's one of my advocacy tips is like, ask if you can hold your child, Mm -hmm. if you don't know, ask, you should always be able to hold your child most of the time you can. And then part of that story too with the advocacy is, so then we get the blood work back. It was like right on the fence and they, it was like probably like almost 11 midnight at this point. And they said, we'll send you home and then you'll just have to come back probably tomorrow and get like a repeat level. Cause they're like, you technically don't meet like criteria, but you're right on the border. So we want to monitor him. And most people don't technically want to stay in the hospital, but right. We're halfway to that. We're at the hospital anyways. And it took three hours to get this IV in him. Uh, So so I said to my sister, do you want to go home, come back tomorrow and go through this whole process again? Or do you want to ask them if you can stay in the hospital? Like, what do you want to do? And she's like, I'm not going through this again. So I, so we spoke up to the physician provider. We said, we want to talk to the provider. Like that, I don't think this is appropriate. Like look at the trauma. She just went through, her son went through uh, and we said, fine, well, put him under lights and they admitted him and she went home the next day and all was good. But like, that's one thing, like you don't think to ask to stay in a hospital, <laughs> <laughs> but you can. So that was probably like my biggest, I don't do a lot of direct patient advocacy. I'm more passionate about like the patient education and trying to expand more of that. So most of my advocacy's been like with family members, but that was probably the most prominent one that really stuck. And I was like, you know what, pediatric like needs parents need to know how much say or questions they can ask when they're in uncomfortable environments.
1: Yeah, that's a wonderful example. Do you think that crying, like you said, caregivers should feel comfortable to cry, feel your emotions. Do you feel like crying? intimidates the health professional or changes the way they view the situation? I don't
0: think crying actually, I think it does. If you're crying and you're sad and they're talking to you, they're going to be potentially empathetic, but I don't know if it necessarily changes the. Oh, I'm going to come over and see why you're crying. If Mm. you're the parent, because they're focused on the child, the child's crying might be a little different, but if you're sitting down, having a conversation, Mm. I don't think they're going to be dismissive that you're crying and be like, oh, that person's crying. I can't believe they, (laughs) They're crying. Uh, But I also don't think they're going to say, oh, that person's crying. Maybe we should advocate for them a little or ask them more questions or, but I don't think that hurts either. But yes, if you're going to try to use crying as a way to get attention, (laughs) I don't think it's going to work because you're so healthcare providers. You're right. They're focused on your usually, depending on the environment, they're more focused on it might stop them to be like, what's wrong? And depending on the situation, like I said, my sister was standing there crying and nobody came over to her and said, you can come and touch your child. Cause they were so busy. They like, trying to get the IV in.
1: As we wrap up, Stacy, do you have any closing thoughts or final tips that you'd like to share?
0: We covered so much good stuff. So I think probably just to kind of summarize it and cl- close it is ask the questions. Don't be afraid you'll get more comfortable the more you ask questions and definitely feel like you can advocate. And if you get a negative response, don't let that deter you from asking questions again in the future from the advocacy standpoint. And then from the medication standpoint, definitely I love the conversation we had earlier about medications are one tool. Be Learn about them if you have to use them for your child, but don't feel like that's the only thing. You can't use herbals or aromatherapy or any other alternative medicine. It all, it's all one. It all helps the overall health of your child and we need to not try to separate them so much.
1: Thank you. Do you have a favorite aromatherapy? Would it be like a recipe, a mix?
0: My favorite is like a nice relaxing. I like lavender experiment, and eucalyptus. It's like my favorite blend.
1: Ooh, I like that. So how would aromatherapy for kids work actually? Now you mentioned that you kind of put it in a diffuser in their room at night, maybe if they're congested or if they need to calm down. Is that how that works?
0: Yeah, you can use a diffuser. You can buy blends. Usually you just need a less concentrated blend. Like you don't, if you're making, if somebody's familiar making aromatherapy and you make your own products or like, or you buy your own, you probably don't want to buy one that's super concentrated, but you can apply them topically. You can also do like sprays. So like I'll do sprays. It's probably what I do the most common with my kids when they don't want to go to bed or they were having like nightmares. We'll do like a nightmare spray or we'll do, um, my kids were afraid there were monsters under the bed. So we did a get like, get rid of monsters spray. And Helped them like create something. Yeah. So, but uh, like that's just a fun way to use it. It smells good. I usually try to pick calming essential oils for that because it's usually bedtime. I let them kind of help pick out which ones. There's obviously somewhat different safety concerns. There are certain oils that kids probably shouldn't have use as much compared to others. And there's little variations there, but same way adults use them. Like kids can definitely benefit if they like the smell, they can be very calming.
1: How long does it take to kick in? Like let's say if you use an <laughs> aromatherapy spray to help them fall asleep.
0: It's once again, not foolproof, right? It's part right. of like that bed timer team. So it just helps them try to get part of like the calming. So it's not mm-hmm. going to necessarily like be like spray this, <laughs> spray <laughs> in your face. <laughs>
1: Otherwise I would be rich already. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, oh my gosh, she has a spray that'll make kids fall asleep. This is a gold mine.
0: Nope, (laughs) I don't. But it does help with like, sometimes it can just help that with that routine and calming. And uh, sometimes when they're wired, sometimes I think too, it's not, definitely the aromatherapy can help, but I think them just knowing that's part of their calm routine. Uh, And I honestly don't use them tons because my kids don't love always like the spraying and but yeah, when they do want to use them, it can be helpful.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Stacey, for coming to the Good Health Cafe. I quite enjoyed our conversation. Me too. This was fabulous. We covered so much. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As usual, if you did, please share it with a friend. I'm also going to encourage you to sign up for the Good Health Cafe email list so that you can get notifications when new episodes are posted. And you'll also hear about new and exciting opportunities that are beginning. For example, we are launching the Good Health Cafe Lounge. The Good Health Cafe Lounge is gonna be an opportunity for you to connect with us live and discuss your questions in a safe small group and we'll discuss all the things about navigating healthcare, go behind the scenes in the episodes and more. If you're interested in this opportunity to join, please email me at info at the Again, that's info at Send me a message if you'd like to join. Until next time, see you in the cafe later. Bye.